Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. Galatians, chapter 6. As I've told you so often in my study of the Bible, I'm always mindful of two seemingly irreverent questions. So what? Or what difference does it make? For it seems to me that in this world nothing is considered more irrelevant than what the Bible says. In fact, that attitude sometimes prevails among Christians as well as skeptics. So we must continually be asking ourselves, really, what difference does this make in my life? Recently, we've been studying the book of Galatians. This is lofty theology here. It's all about the grace of God extended to us in Christ. It's all about the gospel. Here we learn that we're not made righteous before God by our merits, by keeping the law, by our works. Instead, we're made righteous by the work of Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that we can never live, and who died to pay for the, uh, the penalty for our sin that we could never pay. And now he reconciles us to God wholly by grace. So what? What difference does that make? Does it actually change anything about our lives? Well, that's where this text takes us this morning. According to this text, it's not enough to know and believe and rest in God's grace. God calls us to practice that grace, to extend to others what has been given to us. So let me read it. It's a short passage, Galatians 6, verses 1 to 5. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin... You who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else, for each one should carry his own load. There seem to be two truths here, and it's a, it's a bit difficult to pick them out. They're woven together, but I'm going to deal with the second one first, and then we'll come back to what it says in verse 1. This, this, so my first point, actually the second part of the text, is this. Grace changes how we see ourselves. Grace changes how we see ourselves. In our culture, we are deeply into self-image. We spend a lot of money trying to reinvent ourselves. Uh, where we go to school, what jobs we take, what friends we have, all are part of our preoccupation with self-image. In fact, I suspect that our fascination with taking selfie pictures probably has something to do with our self-obsession. But God's grace changes how we see ourselves. I would like to suggest a couple of ways from this text in which that's true. First, grace reminds us that we're no better than anyone else. Reminds us that we're no better than anyone else. God's work of grace begins in us. The very first thing that happens is that God causes us to see the depths of our sinful depravity. For if we do not consider ourselves hopelessly lost defile, sinful, unacceptable before a holy God. We will sense no need of a Savior to substitute 
and atone for our sins and to make us right with God. And so in his grace, God changes the way we see ourselves. He lovingly, though sometimes painfully, brings us to an end of ourselves that we might see our need of Jesus. And when we see ourselves as God sees us, all boasting is suddenly gone. But we realize we're no better than anyone else. The Apostle Paul often made a point of this in Ephesians 2. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You're not better than anybody else. We read again in Romans 3, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Again in Romans 12, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Indeed, in 1 Timothy 1, even the Apostle Paul made this very personal, applied it to himself. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. So here in verse 3, we hear this call to humility in no uncertain terms. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Grace changes how we see ourselves. It reminds us that we're no better than anyone else. Then secondly, grace teaches us that we are accountable for ourselves before God. As we just said, we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But the opposite is also true. We are not just to be passive as if trusting God means to be idle just waiting for life to happen to us. We're not just to be like a chameleon, comparing ourselves with everyone else and fitting in, becoming what everybody else is. We ought not think we are powerless and without any responsibility for ourselves, waiting for God to do the things he told us to do. That's the challenge laid before us here in verses 4 and 5. Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Someone once told me that there are two kinds of pride. There's the pride that's the opposite of humility, and that's evil, sinful pride. But there's also pride which is the opposite of shame. And that pride is good, for it testifies of humble faithfulness before God, in, in, in regard to the responsibilities he has given us. So here in these verses, God is not giving us permission to be prideful in a sinful way. He is calling us to be faithful in our responsibilities so that we are not ashamed when we stand before him. God's grace changes how we see ourselves. So what does this look like in somebody's life? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us a great example when he talks about... Uh, uh, both of these things in regard to himself, being humble about himself, being responsible for himself. Listen to how he explains it in, in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, I'm the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In other words, God showed his grace to him and changed his thinking so that he knew he was no better than anyone else. But he goes on, the next word. But by the grace of God... I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect, 
No, I worked harder than, than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was at work in me. In other words, he also understood that grace made him responsible for himself to serve the Lord. There are people that struggle between the flesh and the spirit that we talked about back in chapter 5. Is God's grace continuing to do its work in us to redefine how we think about ourselves? For when our minds are set on the things of the flesh rather than the spirit, we're not useful to God who is extending grace to the fallen. That is true when we think we're better than they are. It's also true when we fail to take responsibility for ourselves. Both those attitudes make us ineffective and even a detriment to those who are most vulnerable and most in need of God's grace. Which brings us to our second point. Grace calls us to restore the fallen. Grace calls us to restore the fallen. Let me just say from the outset, we're not very good at this restoration business. When someone falls, has some moral lapse, we tend to make that failure the essence of his or her identity from then on. And once someone is so tagged, we rejoice rather than mourn when they move on out of our lives. We feel justified condemning them for other things, for after all, everyone knows all the things they've done in the past. And we forever sit them on the bench in regard to church life, for they're considered unfit to serve now. I praise God the Wise Lake Chapel is less, less like that than many churches, but we're not perfect either. So let me point out some things about this. First, God's plan is to restore the fallen. God's plan is restoration. You know, there's some churches who want to diligently address the sin of the fallen, and and that's good up to a point. But when the focus is on condemning and removing the sin, rather than restoring the sinner, things often get ugly. For the way we tend to deal with sin is to punish it. And so church discipline, when attempted, quickly tends to become punitive. We suspend the brother or sister from the Lord's Supper. We cut them off from the fellowship of the body. We strip them of their responsibilities. And we expect them to forever live a joyless, remorse-filled life. But what about the gospel? My Bible says Jesus paid for our sins well, you don't have to pay for them again. According to my Bible, when Jesus forgives, he lifts the fallen and restores to them the joy of their salvation. And as for responsibilities, the Bible is full of fallen people restored to serve with distinction. Moses, who murdered the Egyptian. David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba and conspired to murder her husband. Paul, the blasphemer and persecutor of the church. How dare we sit someone on the bench calling them unworthy when Christ calls them by saints? Make no mistake, church discipline, both formal and informal, is only intended to bring someone to admit and abandon their sin. But when one confesses and repents, he or she is forgiven. 
There's no guilt to be worked off. There's no punishment to be endured. There's only the rejoicing of angels in heaven and the believers on the earth that the lost has been found and reclaimed and forgiven and restored. Grace calls us to follow God's plan of restoration. Second, here we note that restoration must be the work of God's Spirit. We easily fall into the trap of thinking that we have the power to change people. So when someone has a problem, we begin to amass all of our powers. Our powers of counseling. Our powers of peer pressure. Our powers of public humiliation and heaping guilt on someone. Our our powers of our best persuasive skills. But changing someone's heart has to be the work of the Spirit of God. And we see that right here in our text. Note that the people involved are to be the spiritual ones. That does not mean people with a fascination with spiritism or the latest uh, 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 fad uh, spirituality. No, this means Christian believers who clearly demonstrate by the fruit of their lives that the Holy Spirit is in control in their lives. In fact, verse 1 says it again when it says restore him gently. What it literally says is restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's not describing a mood that we have. That's the Hebrew way of saying the gentle spirit. Restore him by the gentle spirit. What is needed in dealing with the fallen is the work of the Spirit of God who produces the fruit of gentleness and a bunch of other things. For you see, the one from whom all restoration must come is none other than the God who has been offended. Apart from his work of reconciliation, we have no power to restore anyone, no authority to do anything. But because God, working through Christ Jesus, came into the world to reconcile us to himself, not counting our sins against us, and because he has now given us this ministry of reconciliation, the authority to go and to call the broken and the fallen and say, come and be reconciled to God. Therefore, we who have known the grace of reconciliation are given this work to do. But make no mistake, the restoration is the work of God's Spirit who is working in us, who live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit and show evidence of the fruit of the Spirit being born in our lives. Finally, a third thing about this, the work of restoration involves the paradox of burden-bearing. We saw a few minutes ago that God holds each of us responsible for our own lives. So verse 5 says, each one should carry his own load. But because we're part of Christ's body, we cannot ignore the burden of others. For if one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. The whole body feels the burden of the broken and fallen. And so what God has given us He has given not just for our own sake, but for the sake of his body. In his lectures on Galatians, Martin Luther says this rather pointedly and rather profoundly in a way that sets you back a little bit, perhaps. Let me read. 
He says, if there is anything in us, it is not our own. It is the gift of God. But if it is a gift of God, then I must serve others with it, not just myself. Thus my learning is not my own. It belongs to the unlearned. And is the debt I owe them. My chastity is not my own. It belongs to those who commit sins of the flesh, and I am obligated to serve them through it by offering it to God for them, by sustaining and excusing them, and thus with my respectability veiling their shame before God and men. Thus my wisdom belongs to the foolish. My power belongs to the oppressed. My wealth belongs to the poor. My righteousness belongs to sinners. It is with all these qualities that we must stand before God and intervene on behalf of those who do not have them, as though clothed with someone else's garment. And even before men, we must with the same love render them service against their detractors and those who are violent toward them. For this is what Christ did for us. Dear people of God, it's not enough to dutifully bear our own burdens. God calls us to bear the burdens of those who are fallen and broken. As Philip Ryken puts it, every believer is called on to be one of God's bellhops always ready to pick up someone else's baggage. Grace calls us to restore the fallen. Two simple truths we walk away with this morning. Grace challenges how we see ourselves. And grace calls us to restore the fallen. After years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan, our nation now faces a great challenge. For many of those young people we sent off to war have come back broken and maimed, missing limbs, tortured inside. Perhaps they were wounded because um, they were careless or made a bad decision in the heat of battle. But ultimately, it was because of the enemy that they fought. Thank God for those who labored to restore them to health. But less visible and of much less concern to most everyone are those servants of Christ who have fallen while serving him. It is astonishing that the church is often more concerned to condemn than to heal those wounded soldiers of Christ. We read and retell the scandalous gossip of their failures. But too often we then just write them off and hope they will disappear. So I want to close with the lyrics of a song, sung years ago by Steve Green. It's a call to us, the Church of Jesus Christ, to restore those fallen, broken servants of God. It goes like this. See all the wounded? Hear all their desperate cries for help, pleading for shelter, for peace. 
comrades are suffering. Come, let us meet them at their need. Don't let a wounded soldier die. Obeying their orders, they fought on the front lines for our king, capturing the enemy's strongholds. But weakened from battle, Satan crept in to steal their lives. Don't let a wounded soldier die. Come, let us pour the oil. Come, let us bind their hurt. Let's cover them with a blanket of his love. Come, let us break the bread. Come, let us give them rest. Let's minister healing to them. Minister healing to them. Don't let another wounded soldier die. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that uh, Fallen, broken people are troublesome. And it makes interesting conversation to talk about their fallenness. But the truth is, it's very uncomfortable to deal with them. And we often just hope they'll go away. And in that, Father, we see that we perhaps have not been changed in how we think about ourselves, that perhaps we think we're better, that we could never fall like they did. And it certainly, Lord, shows that we've not understood our calling, that you've called us to extend grace, to restore the fallen as you've extended grace to us. So, Father, I don't know what this means. I know that at any given day in the chapel we have broken, fallen people. And we often don't know what to do about it. But give us wisdom and grace. And work the fruit of the Spirit through us to minister healing to them. May we never be satisfied to watch a wounded brother or sister die. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.